0: Welcome to the Vibrant MD Podcast, where we discuss weight loss, women's health, and food. I'm your host, Dr. Heather Awad, a family doctor and certified weight loss coach. This podcast is informational, but is not meant as medical advice. Anything you want to change after listening should be discussed with your own doctor and personal medical team. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. Hello, my vibrant friend. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. And maybe you're watching on YouTube today. I have the distinct pleasure of having my friend from residency, Stacey Devine, with me today. And Stacey, I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Sure. So actually, I met Heather in residency, so I am trained in family medicine and practiced for about 15 years and then decided that there was something missing both kind of personally and professionally for me. So I went and did a two-year fellowship in integrative medicine. Uh, I left traditional practice in 2017 and opened my own consulting integrative practice. And since that time, I've done additional training and I'm board certified in lifestyle medicine. So I have a practice here in North Carolina that I work with patients of all types to really try to help them be more preventative, but also hopefully reduce the use of medications and just have a more holistic approach to their health. But I also have an online program that I've developed for breast cancer survivors. So I'm very passionate about helping breast cancer survivors really kind of, again, improve their overall health, reduce their risk of recurrence and really some of the long term complications from their treatments.
0: Terrific. Well, today we're going to talk about alcohol and how it relates to breast cancer and also weight loss. Yes. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about, I mean, sometimes we drink alcohol, and but it's not really nutritionally much of anything. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So one of the things
1: I talk to people about is that misnomer Knower, that you know, a calorie is a calorie. I really don't believe that. And I feel that people should understand that calories are just a mechanism of, of energy transfer But really, we want to look at the nutrients in our food and what we're consuming. And unfortunately, alcohol is considered empty calories for that reason. It really doesn't have any nutritional benefit. So you're getting calories, but you're not getting any of those wonderful vitamins or minerals or phytochemicals that we can get from really healthy foods in our diet. And so it's just something that if we're definitely we're talking to women, especially about weight loss, it's something that we want to be concerned about because we do want them to be really flooding their body with healthy food and getting you know all those nutrients that we really know that are needed for them to really be optimally functioning.
0: Nice, nice. One of the things that I've noticed, you know, if I've had a couple of glasses of wine, is that I'm not paying attention to how full I am. So there's kind of a whole thing where even just You know, having alcohol changes how you eat.
1: Yeah. So I definitely and I think anyone that has had alcohol can probably attest to that that problem. That really one of the things is it does kind of impact our inhibition. So, you know, I definitely have talked to patients that are like, hey, all day I've been great. I've stuck to stuck to my plan of eating healthy. And then I have a glass of wine, and then all of a sudden. I'm having cheese and crackers or those Oreos just all of a sudden just sound really delicious. And so I think for a lot of people, that lack of inhibition from the alcohol can really contribute to maybe not sticking to your plan as as well as you may have otherwise. But also just sometimes I think even just changes some of the cravings. So it can definitely impact appetite. And there have been studies that suggest that people that consume more alcohol tend to have a lower quality diet overall. You can think of—I always kind of joke about bar food when you—you know—that that word of bar food is not usually like a fruit plate, right? So I mean, usually it's some of the bar food in general is kind of really heavy. It helps people absorb more alcohol. It's usually a lot of calories in there, but t- that's usually that's why you know it kind of tends to prolong that alcohol effect. Usually, not healthy foods that they're serving in a bar along with that alcohol. So lots to be not lots to be said about the kind of the impact with with your appetite for sure.
0: The I haven't thought about the bar food things. it's usually a yeah. lot of flowery stuff or yeah. fried, right? Yeah. Which are it's fried,
1: a lot of cheese, a lot of things that have that really kind of, again, heaviness you know, a lot of saturated fat, a lot of times people say like it helps kind of soak things up, right? But really, probably what that's doing is just slowing that absorption of the alcohol so that again, people can drink longer. It's smart for the bar then to be able to get more drinks into people before they really feel the effects of alcohol. So but I think we just want to be careful that again, we're just looking at, you know, if you're trying really hard to, to lose weight, we don't want anything in your diet that's going to impact that that's going to really make you not make as good
0: choices. Right. And that whole list are foods that cause inflammation, which causes Correct. disease. So, our, you know, most of the people listening are, you know, professional women over age 50. So they're, you know, you're looking at your long-term health goals that they, you know, they just don't hit any right. of those. Right? right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like you said, I I went to a wings place once too, and I couldn't eat the, the only thing that wasn't fried was the celery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not a lot of options there. Yeah. And they were like, we only give you two pieces of celery. <laughs> um, okay. So there are other effects on the brain too, right?
1: Yeah. So I think, I mean, a lot of patients that I work with, and I think this is really common. A lot of people use alcohol um, for stress. So they'll say, you know, I've had a long day. I just want a glass of wine. Just helps me relax. And that's kind of how they feel that that stress response is kind of helping with that. And really, one of the things that we want patients to understand is that it can affect this kind of stress response in the body. So some people have heard of that. I don't usually love the term adrenal fatigue because our adrenals really don't get tired. But there's a long term that's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the HPA axis. And it has been shown that alcohol can impact that functioning in the body. And so what it can do over time for people that consume alcohol regularly It can actually increase that cortisol stress response that we have in the body. Though even in the short term, if you feel like it's helping with stress, in the long term, it's actually worsening it. It's actually increasing your stress response over time. And so it's kind of one of those short-term, long-term things that, again, people, I think, sometimes misuse it and for sometimes for that reason for stress. And so really one of the things we want to counsel patients about is that there's probably healthier ways for them to manage that stress that are actually mm-hmm. going to long-term help with that cortisol stress response. And that cortisol response for weight is really significant. So that's something that we really want to address. If a patient is concerned, like, hey, I'm not losing weight, I'm doing all these correct things and we're not addressing that underlying, you know, their stress and some of those other pieces in their lifestyle, we're going to, it's going to be a
0: lot harder to be successful. Yeah, I like that. That's super interesting. You know, something I have heard from my clients as well, because they're mostly, you know, I think I've already said this, but mostly professional women over age 50, you know, alcohol is a big decision at that point in time. And I've even had some of them say, you know, I really like to have The alcoholic drink because of the social anxiety just kind of seems to smooth out the evening. But then some of them have expressed that on some evenings, it actually makes them feel worse Mm -hmm. instead of better. So it's not, you know, a hundred percent helper. Right. And some of them have also experimented with having, you know, sparkling water with a lime or a lemon and Mm -hmm. said, you know, I felt so good when I... Hydrated myself at this event. Mm-hmm. That actually it made the social stuff better. So it's yeah. like experimenting with other, you know, other things that are healthy, you know, to see if the, that stress reaction maybe isn't even on the short term always.
1: Correct. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think a lot of people, and I kind of say it's it's a great experiment to try out and just see what you notice. And the cool thing is, there's been a lot more movement lately, kind of a sober movement in in the U.S. So even like for things like restaurants and places like that or even parties, there are typically more non-alcoholic options besides water <laughs> or soda, which are nice. So there are people and definitely even restaurants now are you know, have things like mocktails or other things so that if you still want to feel kind of festive and have that, you can still do that. You just don't have to have the alcohol piece of things.
0: Yeah. Nice. Nice. And I'm always up for experimenting with with things because it's, you know, sometimes we're worried to try things, but just try it, you know. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think, I mean, a lot of times with myself, I just, I put something like a LaCroix or something like a sparkling water. I just put it in a wine glass. It just makes it feel fancy and it just feels like that treat, you know, but it doesn't have to have the
0: alcohol. Right. Right. So So nice. So sleep is a big deal. Let's talk about that because alcohol definitely affects our sleep. Yeah. Without question.
1: So, and I think most people that probably listen to your podcast after menopause, it seems like even more so. So, if you got through your twenties, thirties, maybe even early forties, maybe alcohol didn't seem to have that much effect. But definitely, as women age, and some of that's the metabolism of how we kind of inter, kind of interplay with alcohol, a lot of people have increasing um, effects on with alcohol on sleep. But we do know from the research, regardless of whether you're premenopausal, postmenopausal. We do know that sleep, even though most people, again, kind of like that stress response that people feel like it may be helping, they Mm -hmm. feel like it may help them fall asleep. But what we truly know is that the research says that it does not actually improve your sleep, what we call architecture. So when they look at like a sleep study of somebody... Um, they're sleeping actually less well. So, let, less of that deep restorative sleep that is so critical for not just how you feel the next day, but really the functions that we really need for sleep. So, that's when repair is happening in our brains. And we are really shortchanging ourselves when we have alcohol. And even if it's at dinner, it can still affect your sleep. So, even if it's not right before bed that you're having a drink, we definitely
0: see that response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good to note. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes I, because we start to get into black and white thinking, a lot of my clients will when we say something like this, like, oh, no, I can never have it. Yeah. And I just say that just know that you're making a you're making a real big choice when you decide to have an alcoholic drink and mm-hmm. be OK with the consequences. Yeah. And so, you know, you may want to cut back. You may want to quit. Mm-hmm. but But if you want to have it, you don't have this doesn't have to be a black and white decision. But just know tonight, I'm not going to sleep as well because I want to have this tonight. Um, Right, right. And I think just being aware of that. So too, I mean,
1: I think for some people, they haven't maybe made the connection that maybe their daily glass of wine is impacting their sleep. And that's why I think sometimes it's helpful just to take a break and just be like, hey, wait a minute, (laughs) what happened with my sleep? Or like, am I feeling less tired the next day? And that's just, you know, that's a good, again, a good experiment for you just to learn more about your body and how you react. But we do know that, again, that sleep, poor sleep can affect some of the hormones that impact your appetite as well. So that's the other issue that we then we start having, especially for patients that are trying to lose weight. If that's impacting their sleep quality and then those, those hormones are affected, then your appetite tends to change. So we have more of those cravings throughout the day and they tend to crave more carbohydrates as well. So those floury, sugary foods, we tend to crave more of those. That's actually a physiologic response. So that's not in your head that you're like, wait a minute, why am I craving more cookies and things like that if I'm more tired? It's really kind of hardwired into our, our DNA and how we how we function that when our body kind of gets that stress signal like, hey, we need to kind of fuel that. And unfortunately, now in the common day, we don't tend to tend to need those foods to kind of help us long term with survival and things like that. But it really can impact again your day-to-day of how well you're able to kind of stick to a healthier eating plan.
0: Right. Right. And some things that we don't and we don't always notice all the things. Like I went to my own integrative doctor at 50 to talk about supplements and things. And she said that she asked about hot flashes. And I was having them pretty bad at the time. And she said, Have you noticed that your hot flashes are like, that when you drink alcohol, that it's like throwing gasoline on on the fire of your hot flashes? And I said, no, I have not noticed that. And she said, why don't you pay attention over the next couple of weeks? And it was true. And I had not, I had not connected those because some nights were better than others anyway with hot flashes. So... I didn't notice in particular that that was one of the things that definitely made them worse, but it was. So. Yeah, I
1: definitely myself same thing. I had that <laughs> very dramatic response with alcohol and hot flashes, so it was something same thing. It's almost like that decision. Well, is the glass of wine worth the two AM wake up that I feel like I'm literally on fire? So again, that's just a decision, right? So you get you get that choice. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, let's take a, you know, I actually, we do not talk about the gut microbiome on this podcast. Oh, uh, okay, very- well, great. I don't like oh. talking about it. So yeah, great. So, let's talk about um, that and alcohol. Yeah, sure.
1: So. So for some people if you're not familiar with the gut microbiome, we have different microbiomes within our body. So the gut is the one that's frequently talked about, but there are microbiomes on things like our skin and women that I work with, there's actually a, there's actually a separate breast microbiome. So there's there's research on different areas, but one of the areas that probably gets the most press is the gut microbiome. So this is the microbes that are living in our basically in our intestines. And they do now, more and more research has come out about it, that this really can interplay with our own health. So these individual microbes that live within us can really impact things like our immune system. It can impact things like our hormones, but it can also impact our weight. So there's definitely been some very interesting research about even obesity and the gut microbiome. But one of the things that I think that's really interesting about alcohol specifically is when you think about it back before the days that we had, you know, the antiseptic sprays that if you, you know, if your kid falls down and gets cut, we spray something on there to, to kill germs for years and years. We used alcohol for that. Alcohol is an antiseptic. So we would use that to help clean wounds and to kill, you know, harmful bacteria. You need to think about that, that when that alcohol hits those gut microbiome and those bacteria that are living in your gut that are some of them very healthy and that we want there, it doesn't discriminate bad bacteria versus good bacteria. And so it can actually lower the amounts of those good, healthy bacteria that are really important for our health and it can suppress them. So there's been some research about that and something, again, there's kind of a a term that gets thrown around called leaky gut. I like to use the medical term, which is increased intestinal permeability. So what that means is if you can kind of picture all these little cells lined up and they should have these really nice, tight connections, they should be touching each other, what happens with alcohol is it actually loses those connections. And so it allows... Unfortunately, things to pass through that normally shouldn't. Be, and that can definitely trigger more inflammation throughout the body, but other symptoms as well. And so it's definitely something, again, I want to counsel patients about that. Again, it's another decision about what they're consuming is also very important. There's things that, you know, foods, definitely things like fibrous food, things that like vegetables and mm-hmm. fruits that are really helpful for the microbiome. But there's also things that we can be consuming that are not as healthy for the microbiome. And Alcohol, unfortunately, is on that list.
0: Right, great. And I think we do have good, you know, unfortunately, animals are not the same as humans. We, we do have good research on mice and the microbiome and obesity. And I am just waiting for, you know, the the things that we'll get from human studies on that. Um,
1: yeah, I think it's gonna be it's going to be fascinating what we learn about that. Because obviously we do know that there's people that, you know, that that are doing really all the right things when it comes to mm-hmm. lifestyle and they don't lose weight the same as maybe somebody else. And, you know, could that be because their microbiome is different? Um, and so I think there's a lot of research there on, again, how these microbes can really interplay with our own health, our metabolism and other things about ours to really help us
0: function kind of the best way we know how. Great, right. And it'll be nice to see, too, because there are different strategies for... I mean, right now it's just, you know, healthy eating and like you said, things with fiber and, you know, I right. like fermented foods and those things, but it, it will be very interesting to see kind of what other strategies we'll be able to, to yes, use. To-
1: I mean, I think it's definitely interesting that there could be things like personalized pre and probiotics based on your mm-hmm. own microbiome, things like that, so that really medicine can be personalized. I think it's fascinating in the cancer research. Again, sometimes some patients respond better to immunotherapy Because of their gut microbiome. So again, there, I think there's more and more kind of hopefully potential for learning more about again, these microbes, how they can impact our health, but even how we can personalize medicine so that patients get the best care possible based on their unique makeup with their own DNA, but also what's in their gut.
0: Yeah, that's going to be cool. So more to, more to, more to learn on that, more to come.
1: Yeah, I hope so.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about breast cancer because sure. a lot of people that you interact with online are um, breast cancer survivors.
1: Correct. Yeah. So I think that's one thing that I really like. I know most of your audience is post-menopausal women. I mm-hmm. just really like them to understand the risk of alcohol in that, in that age group. So we do know that alcohol specifically is, is a risk factor for cancer. Um, there are seven cancers that it is increased. The interesting thing about the research is that breast actually has one of the lowest um, amounts of alcohol intake with that impact, which that means is there really hasn't been yet a safe level studied. Um, even in studies that had less than a half a drink a day showed an increased risk of breast cancer. So, there is a very low threshold, unfortunately, to see that increased risk. And it does seem to be higher in postmenopausal women than in premenopausal. There, There is a risk for both. I will want to make that clear that alcohol does increase it for both, but it seems to be a little bit stronger in that postmenopausal um, age group. And so we just really, again, that's one of the things that I really, you know, counsel my patients about is that Hey, let's like, let's just make sure that you understand that this is a potential risk factor for breast cancer as well. A lot of people do not know that. So that is still wow. not, unfortunately not a common thing. It's not typically talked about a lot. I know a lot of patients, a lot of women that get mammogram reports a lot. I don't know. It's going to be now a national guideline as of, I think, next year that everyone gets reported about the breast density on their mammogram. That's going to be a national change, thankfully. Not all states currently require that on reports. But about 50% of women have an increased breast density on a mammogram. And that already is an increased risk for breast cancer. And a lot of women are not counseled about that as well. So it's really more just kind of, again, telling women that there are certain what we call modifiable risk factors that they may have some control over and there's things that they may be able to do their weight is one of those factors as well. So unfortunately, obesity is another risk factor, especially in postmenopausal women for breast cancer. And so if someone's overweight and they're also drinking regularly, it would be another chance to counsel these women that there is something they can do to impact their own personal risk.
0: Okay. And so that's, we're talking about these, these things that you're talking about right now are people who've never had breast cancer before, right? Correct. It's to try to prevent, right? Okay. And does that also continue on for the people who are survivors?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. There's less data on survivors. So we have more data on women and it's definitely considered a stronger, we have a stronger pool of data essentially for that alcohol breast cancer risk. But it has been looked at in breast cancer survivors. And it's been found too that the current recommendation is they probably should be not drinking more than three drinks per week. If they desire to not drink alcohol, that would be supported. But if they were going to choose to drink, that usually that limit we talk about is usually around three drinks per
0: week. Okay. Great. Thank you. Yeah. You know, the science, you know, I I like to <laughs> like my clients too and my patients, the science is what we know now. And so, you know, we'll keep looking at that. And the I, I thankfully, breast cancer research is fairly well funded. So we should, you know... It's not that, that scientists and doctors change their minds, but as they keep studying more and more people with these, hopefully we'll get
1: Right, you learn better. more, you learn more for sure. You know, just like that, that's kind of the new smoking, right? So we, back in the day, if you actually go back in the 30s, they actually used to give cigarettes to people. They thought it was actually healthy for them. And obviously now we would all say, well, that's crazy. We know now that that's not a good thing. Hopefully now the next generation is going to know more about the impact of alcohol on our health. And so obviously, this is just from more and more research that we have learned that. But I just I like to counsel women about this because so many women still believe that the primary cause of breast cancer or most times it's genetic. And that's usually the first thing someone will say is by talk about breast cancer is like, well, I'm not really worried about it because it doesn't run in my family. And I think that's another huge misconception. The majority of women diagnosed with breast cancer in the U.S. do not have a family history of it. So. Unfortunately, there's a lot of risk factors that we can't control. So we can't control that we're getting older. Age is a, is a big one as we age. We we're women. So we can't control that as well. The age of your first menstrual cycle and sometimes with pregnancy and breastfeeding, those things have made, have already passed in your life. So there's not much you can do about that at that moment. So the things that we can modify typically are things like, are we exercising? Again, body fat percentage and body fat and truly trying to reduce that, as well as the alcohol consumption. Those are the main modifiable ones that we know of right now. Okay. Yeah, it's good to know
0: what things you can do that are in your control to change mm-hmm. what you want. Yeah. Great.
1: Right. And again, it's all about choices. But I think also, I think a lot of women are very shocked when they're diagnosed with breast cancer because of that same misconception. They're like, I, you know, I never thought to, it could happen to me because, you know, my mom didn't have it. It's not, it doesn't run in my family. And so, again, I feel like it's, it's our job to really educate people more about, again, are there, anything, are there anything else that we can kind of suggest to help reduce their own personal risk? And again, it's risk. Doesn't mean that even if you do everything right, of course, that you can't get cancer. Unfortunately, that does happen. But if there is something that you could change and if you knew that it would potentially reduce your risk, a lot of women would want to do that.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you talking about that. There's a lot of press, of course, about people. You know, we talk, you always hear about the celebrity who had this genetic thing and so the and this is the surgery they had and there's a lot of talk about that and and less talk about these kind of risk factors that you know are kind of everyday everyday things
1: right right and i always say too like i don't i never want anyone to feel like the blame shame game around that too because i never want someone to feel like oh you know i did this to myself we never know in an individual patient what kind of caused that cancer and again, we're just talking about risk. So it's one of those things, just like we would encourage people to exercise for all kinds of reasons for their health. These are just factors that, that we do know can impact it. But again, we never would want someone that has been diagnosed with cancer to feel kind of that blame that they, that they caused their cancer.
0: Yeah. Thank you for saying
1: that. That's mm-hmm.
0: really. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I just appreciate every time we talk about something. So yeah,
1: thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah. Well, where can I, we, I will put all of your contact information and your socials and your website and the show notes so people can find you easily there with a, just a click, but please tell people out loud where they can find you.
1: Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm at Stacey Divine MD. I actually have two websites. One is for my practice, Stacey Vine MD. But for my online program is open to anyone in the U.S. or Canada, any anybody for breast cancer survivorship. That's, a, that's a, stealth, a self-study program. The website for that is Thriving ABC. So it stands for Thriving After Breast Cancer. So thrivingabc.com. They can go there. I've got some freebies that they can download with more information. But also I send out a weekly newsletter and then also they can sign up for my class.
0: great. Great. Thank you again for being here. I really appreciate the conversation. Sure. Thank you. Hello, this is Dr. Heather Awad, founder of Vibrant Weight Loss for Professional Women Age 50+. It is September 2023. We welcome Dr. Nikita Shah, who is an obesity medicine doctor and life coach. She is joining us because September is the most popular month to join Vibrant Weight Loss Over 50. So if you are interested and ready to go, please go to heatherawadmd.com. So that's Heather, A-W-A-D, M-D, dot com, and book a call to apply for the program. I look forward to meeting you.